where Holden Caulfield makes a call at 2.30 in the morning and the response isn't, no, I'm terribly sorry, the master can't come to the phone at the moment. But everybody just goes, oh, yeah, 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 right on, let's hang out. Was this a common occurrence? Was it normal to call people after a certain hour back then? <laughs> if you had to choose a time for a, a trusted mentor to come into your life with some sage and timely advice, it would not be at the end of 48 hours of being awake, sleeping rough in New York and drinking heavily. Baker, 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 grove! <laughs> Hello and welcome to our third and final part of our Courage of a Catcher in the Rye. This is, of course, Shark Live Royal. I'm Matt. I'm Dave. Hello. And uh, yeah, Catcher in the Rye, part three. We're reading from, well, we're covering the period between chapter 21 and, of course, the end of the book. We're going to be, as, as ever, getting to grips with the nitty gritty and taking you through page by page of uh, The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. At the end this time, we also do our, no, uh, I suppose... Just it's become a bit of an institution of a selection of reviews, both from yourselves and from other parts of the internet. Which it's uh, magnificent. I really enjoy this bit that this has become a thing, because because yeah. otherwise, if the book's crap, we've got nothing. But even at the end of a bad book, which this necessarily <laughs> isn't, we've still got like nine pages of internet ire, and that's always just comedy gold. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've also got a special announcement for what we're doing for the. Uh, for the next month, which is, of course, December, and uh, a special festive programme, which awaits Don't say you. that, because it sounds crap. It sounds like we're just going to do the same <laughs> thing, but the theme tune will have little bingy-bongy noises behind it, and that's the that's the Christmas special. At uh, this it's, stage, it's... <laughs> and with this level of creativity between us, I'm not ruling that out. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than that. Everybody, he's kidding, he's joking. It's better than that, all right? Yeah. But first... The Catcher in the Rye. Now, this is a book which I have so far really enjoyed, and would say for you, Dave, uh, it's not without its problems, is it? Yeah, that's completely undeniable. I, I have warmed to it more as we've got into it this time, and I certainly have a higher opinion of it than I had when I was actually in its target audience. I first read mm. this when I was 17. Um, uh, so it is more nuanced than I was willing to say it was when we started, but it's still... I, I still struggle to see how it's seen as a, a classic of world literature. So far. I mean, we'll hmm. see what I'm saying by the end of this. But right now, it's a bit sort of, come on. Hmm. You know? Okay. Well, let's get into the final part of the book then. So, so far, to very briefly sum up what's happened, uh, Holden Caulfield... Nothing's this, happened. Sorry. <laughs> this teenager from... Uh, is in sort of living in 1950s America. Yeah. Was oh, that right? And, he's, um, and he, he's run away from school and effectively been expelled as well and he's spent a couple of days knocking around in new york trying to find himself and come to terms with the world before returning home and when we last left him he was wandering around central park being thoroughly depressed and deciding to sneak home to to speak to his his little sister who he's got a, a lot of affection for mm. so chapter 21 and we return to him as he's approaches his his mum and dad's house or his mum and dad's apartment he lies his way into the lift he's a bit he's quite adept at tall tales and he manages to get in by getting the better of this guy who's operating the lift who's not the usual guy so doesn't know who he is uh (laughs) he sneaks into the house he's got to worry this this is the problem when you're when you're in this sort of strata of society dave not only have you got to worry about waking mum and dad up you could also wake the maid up well, we've all been there, haven't we? Mm, yeah. Haven't we? 
No. No, no <laughs> nobody's fucking been there, have they? <laughs> Got to worry about waking the maid up, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Tell you what, if you can afford domestic staff, you can afford to have good relationships with your family. <laughs> it sounds to me like some some weird uh, line that means something else, you know, like in wartime or, mid, you know, don't wake the maid up. Don't wake the maid. The red fox has leapt over the yellow moon and don't yeah. wake up the maid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he doesn't wake the maid up, though, luckily. He, mm. he sneaks into the house, uh, sneaks into his sister's room, and at first, before he wakes her up, he just sits and reads through a couple of her things on her desk. It's back to this thing that he did with Ackley right at the start of the book. He is very fast and loose with other people's things isn't it <laughs> just yeah yeah so but in a up. very kind of distracted sort of a way rather yeah. than a kind of a quiz you get the sense with holden that he's not sort of he's curious but not so that he can kind of exercise more influence over people he's just sort of constantly reaching out to understand all of these weird aliens that are in his life pretending to be human <laughs> beings yeah, yeah. Uh, he goes. He goes through her one of her books, and he sees that his, his little sister's been re- writing her name a few times, and she's her middle name. She's put as Weatherfield, Caulfield, <laughs> and um, and it's not a name. And he thinks that's hilarious. And you can see a bit of reflection of him in her. I think she, yeah, she, calls, yeah. she calls herself uh, Weatherfield Caulfield Esquire as well, isn't she? <laughs> I I really like that. I thought the whole this whole phoebe sequence i think phoebe's just a really delightful character because yeah. she's she's kind of you you kind of see what holden sees in her because she's kind of like she's sparky and she's intelligent and she's quite fun uh, yeah. but she's also just has no time at all for kind of worrying about what other people think of her yeah. and she's just there's a there's a great innocence to her which i think you know holden kind of envies and recognizes that he's come to lack I think mm. that's really sad. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And uh, when he wakes her up, it's a really sweet scene, this, isn't it? She's really excited to see him. And uh, he he has that, he bought her this record, which he knows she really likes, but he dropped it and it all smashed to bits and he kept the pieces. Yeah. And she takes the pieces off him and says, oh, I'll keep them as well, because he's just so excited to, to see him again. Yeah. And you can, yeah. you, can see, you can see why it's a classic sibling relationship when it's good, that... Um, they, I think she really likes it because he's genuinely interested in what she's up to as well. She talks to me about her yeah. school, this play, and the, and uh, this film that she went to see, and he he listens to her, and she mm-hmm. listens to, it. and you get the feeling when a mum mum comes back later, she asks about I think it's school or about the play, and she listens without really understanding uh-huh. it, uh-huh. and she's out of the picture uh-huh. as quick as, uh-huh. as she's in. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you can see why, and it's quite. I thought it was quite well observed. It's a, it's a way that most families, a lot of families, can work, isn't it? Especially if mom and dad aren't particularly, you know, close to the children. The siblings pick up the slack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I clearly very true in this case, and um, and this was another sequence where I really felt. I, I they just felt like the characterization and the plot and the language all clicked into focus here. In a way, I feel like they've been struggling to throughout the book. Mm-hmm. And the other sequence where I think this really worked was when Holden was in the hotel room getting beaten up by that pimp. Yeah. Um, cl- classic teen coming of age story. And, <laughs> um, uh, but there was a moment there where, you know, the characters and everything that was going on seemed to be of a piece. And a lot of the rest of the time, I've been sort of sitting here going, I don't understand what you're trying to do, but here we have this whole thing about innocence, about growing up, about love, about family, and about how 
even somebody as like Olympic standard cold and disconnected as Holden Caulfield can experience this kind of unambiguous warmth of relationship with somebody. Mm, yeah. And you said that uh, Phoebe's very sparky and bright, and you see that in how she very quickly figures out why he's back, back so quick, even though she's quite young. Yeah. And then it's, she she gets it very quickly and says, why are you home so early? You've been expelled again. <laughs> <laughs> and you kind of love that, don't you? Because it's like, how often must this happen to hold him for a start? But yeah. also, like... I just, I love that she takes none of his shit. She starts off with, "Oh, you've been expelled, haven't you?" and goes along with, "Don't stop swearing," and and kind of and, and just kind of every like she just keeps being like, "I love you, knock it off." And I just, yeah. in a way, that's one of the most loving things that can be said to somebody in some you know if they're in some circumstances. Like, I love you. Stop doing that. Yeah. <laughs> You know? And she she really gives him a hard time over it as well. It's not sort of you know you're my big brother and you probably know best and just just swallows all of like you say swallows all of his bullshit about why he's leaving. She says yeah. you know oh dad's gonna be so angry with you and how could you do this and then she she effectively gives him the cold shoulder doesn't she and just won't speak yeah, to yeah. him. And yeah. again it's yeah she's very she, she's very mature for her age as well with that. Yeah 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 it's true. Um, and you kind of and you do see a bit of an image of what maybe Holden used to be like. Mm. And um, and that's important because we hear later on in this little bit, as we've already heard about these one or two really significant traumas that have happened in Holden's life, probably to knock him off that path. Mm. Um, you know, and so it just it makes Holden a much more three dimensional character than I previously felt like I was interacting with most of the time. Yeah. In in chapter twenty two, uh, Phoebe calls out Holden's bullshit on his Colorado plan as well, which seems to have just popped <laughs> into his head, which is going to go and become a rancher. <laughs> yeah, oh, I loved it because the whole book he's been coming up with these stupid fucking ideas, and then the next sentence is, "So I did that," and there's nobody around, not even himself, to go, "No, don't do that, you moron." There's it. What exercise a little fucking reflection and work your life out. No, no, no. I'm going to call Sally. No, I'm going to go and live in Massachusetts. Oh, probably Colorado. Eh? I don't know. I'll have a prostitute oh i don't know what's going to happen next maybe i'll chat with one of my mates mums on the train like it's just <laughs> it, it, I, every one of these things has been totally infuriating to me mm. and i've wanted somebody in the text to go up to him and just smack him around the chops a little bit and tell him not to be so bloody stupid and here's phoebe doing that you know yeah yeah and he, he tries to explain himself to her as to why he he hated his school and why he left he gives two specific reasons which are i think we've seen throughout the book as reasons why he just is fallen out of love with life if you like in general and especially the society is in one yeah, is yeah. how how the there's this club that some of the people at pensy some of the students at pensy put together and they wouldn't let ackley oh. in and he thought yeah. it was really they were basically it was basically this club where everyone was mean to ackley <laughs> and he thought it wasn't it just wasn't right and he yeah. just depressed him and he and he hated yeah. that idea. And also this thing about Veterans Day, where this bloke, like this fifty-year-old bloke, came into their room and said, "Oh, yeah, is this this is when like ex-alumni come back and uh, yeah, and and see the school." And this bloke comes into the room, and says, "Oh, I used to, I used to live here. Oh, can I just use your bathroom so he can go in there and find his uh this this graffiti his that he name put there. still scratched on the door yeah and the, the thing that really affects holden is that the guy's breathing so heavily because he's run up the stairs and it's yeah. this again like you saw with the bellboy and a couple of other examples his, his old teachers as well he, yeah. he thinks you know is this is this what awaits getting older yeah. you become so feeble and pathetic yeah and there's almost a thing isn't there where somebody's been kind of raised 
in a it, we're always being told basically you know grown-ups know better than you do and older people are wiser than you and and all of this and mm. there's this you know a big part of what this book is i think is is holding hitting adulthood and being like hang on none of you know the first fucking thing what you're talking bollocks i've been lied <laughs> to this whole time yeah and i think that's actually i think that's a really crucial part of becoming an adult recognizing that you in a, you know, in, if you take it positively, you don't have to carry on the mistakes of the people that have gone before you. Mm. But there is, you know, the thing that gets you to that point, if you're lucky, is um, if you're lucky enough to get there, is this moment of total betrayal, basically, where you're like, you're all fucking useless. Yeah. Now, and admittedly, that... I would expect that to happen nowadays at like 14 or 15 rather than 17, 18, but mm. different age, I suppose. Yeah, but you're right. That is the other side of the coin to that is that you, you, there is this sense of betrayal where you suddenly realise, actually, the, you know, the adults don't know better than me and there, there isn't this sort of moment where you become all-knowing about it. Yeah, yeah, it's a slow-growing process, but I think when you when you realise it and you start to kind of live out of it, I can imagine it being quite a traumatic thing, particularly for somebody in such a stratified society as this, you know, where authority meant a lot more. Yeah, I agree. And... Um, it's yeah i suppose that sort of break isn't quite as hard these days is it because some of that authority between adults and teenagers especially has been eroded um mm. now phoebe fires back with when he expl- gives his reasons she says you hate everything G- give give me one example of something that you like and you can't do it can you and that yeah. suddenly causes holden to stop and think about it doesn't it and yeah. uh, he yeah. tries to come up with something and in the end, yeah. one one of his, he thinks about those nuns collecting for charity, and uh, but he says the example of this James Castle guy. Well, he thinks about this James Castle guy, who, oh, man. yeah, this is really it's another one of his schools, and he was getting beaten up and bullied effectively, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't give in to them, and he ended up committing suicide, didn't he? I tell you what, I I, I read this, and for the first time now having heard a little bit particularly about what was normal at boarding schools in those days Mm. i was like i think rape was happening there i think that this is a very 1950s book way of saying that he was being raped in that room and that Mm. he jumped out of the window to try and get away from it rather than rather than kind of give in and and it's this really kind of I, i i it's just horrifying and like the thing where he kind of pivots and starts talking about the death of his brother Mm. Um, and actually where later on in this bit he he starts talking to his brother out loud you know you get a sense of Holden Caulfield not just as a kind of archetypal teenager but as a specifically traumatised young man Mm. and and this oh man it was was just absolutely horrifying this the James Castle sequence so this is followed with the, the sort of what do you like question moves into you know what do you want to be Mm. Be, yeah, when when you're older and stuff, and it's a it's a funny thing for for Phoebe to be asking about, it. and again, it's a ma- very mature conversation she's having, and mm. um, and Holden sort of doesn't really know, does he? And in the end, we get this this key bit, which includes the title of the book, where he says, "Yeah, he wants to be." He, he imagines all these kids playing in like on the edge of a cliff and some of them running towards it and he wants to be the catcher in the ride the person who stops them falling off the cliff and helps them yeah um and it's this again it's this longing of 
I think one of the big things that Holden likes to do and wants to do is preserve that innocence of children. He likes kids mm-hmm. when they when they're young, doesn't he? Because they've got yeah. this innocence yeah. and brightness about them. And the thing he despises is how it disappears when you're older. And he sees it in these various examples of adults that he meets along the way. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. yeah, what did you make of that? Well. I mean, this is difficult because, the, I mean, the James Castle thing, reading it the way I did, really kind of, to object to him saying this at this point would be kind of gross. Um, but at the same time, I actually didn't find this very convincing at all. I was like, so I went and read the poem in question. And fair enough, like even in the text, it's acknowledged that he doesn't really understand it. Because the mm. poem in question is about two people meeting in a hayfield and having sex there. So it's, it's not exactly, you know, the the picture of childhood innocence, right? Mm. Um, but um, But even more than that, I just felt a bit... I haven't seen anything else in the whole of his behaviour that actually shows that he's going to act out of this. Because I don't think, you know, I think it's quite common for people who become social workers and teachers and so on. I know a lot of these people. And for a lot of them, it really is. I want people to have a better shake than I did. Hmm. You know, and there's this there's this kind of altruistic desire to give people better than what they had. Hmm. Um, and so that's not uncommon for me to see in my life. And so to have a, a character take 200 pages just to get to the point of saying yeah, I'd probably quite like to help the kids. Maybe that was revolutionary in 1951, but now I'm like, well, yeah, no fucking shit, Sherlock. Mm. Like, I just, I felt like that wasn't enough of an epiphany or enough of a kind of character revelatory moment for it to feel like, oh, now Holden as a character is fully realised and completely makes sense and is Mm. deep and three-dimensional. I'm like, no, he's got the same level of three-dimensional concern as me or any of my friends aged 17, 18 who wanted to be youth workers. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, it wasn't it wasn't enough for me. But what did you mm. make of it? Um, yeah, I, I mean, it is strange because this, we'll come on to it as we get to the very end of the book. The ending isn't this massive coming together and there's some things that I was surprised that just, just got left out as well and we never went back to. But mm. uh, yeah, I, I think it, it it made sense to me because... Mm. It, it is it is sort of a, a and you you do as you're reading it think you know what's going to happen to him and this is a I suppose at least a note of optimism that there may be something that he can some positive thing that he could end up doing and mm. I thought that was quite important the fact that he's, mm. he's he, after going talking about how, how many things he dislikes and how few things he likes he can almost stumble upon some kind of positive thing that he'd like to do to make yeah. things better because there are two ways yeah. you go out there one way is you want to do something to change it and make it better and the other is you just want to give up and just forget all about it because it's everything's hopeless so at or least there's the, an or the third way which i think is most of the people around him which is i want to exploit this situation for my own material gain yeah um, yeah to just just give up and become a part of it yeah exactly yeah mm. And and he's clearly unwilling to do that. So I, I I take your point there. Actually, I think I think you know you you don't have to read it as bleakly as I've read it. But that's definitely like emotionally. That's where it left me. That's what it left me kind of thinking or or, or looking mm-hmm. at. You know. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> oh, they also. If you think this is getting a bit too heavy for uh, two children to be doing, uh, Phoebe then uh, starts going through her belching lessons. Uh, she's a nice little <laughs> bit of grounding just to remind you that she's this, this small child still. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
chapter 23, he just pops out of the room for a minute to to call this guy called Mr. Antolini, who is mm. uh, one of his... He's <clears throat> obviously one of these teachers that Holden actually quite likes. Mm. And there's obviously some kind of relationship there because it's quite late at night and Mr. Antolini answers <laughs> and says, sure, come round, we'll talk. Can, can, we, can we note that before we move on to, to that scene? Is mm. the preponderance of occasions in this book where Holden Caulfield makes a call at 2.30 in the morning and the response isn't, what? No, fuck off, I'm asleep. Or even, yeah. no, I'm terribly sorry, the master can't come to the phone at the moment. But everybody just goes, oh, yeah, 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 right on, let's hang out. Or, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's absolutely reasonable that you've called me at this hour. Or even when yeah. he's slurring drunk, people are still civil to him. I just, yeah. like, was this a common occurrence? Was it normal to call people after a certain hour back then? <laughs> <laughs> it's just people stayed in all night going and waiting for the phone to ring don't know who it might be but it's yeah. definitely reasonable if it happens at 2.30 in the morning yeah because we're a good generation after you know people started getting telephones now so surely yeah, the exactly. novelty's worn off by yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not we're not in the ahoy hoy kind of phase <laughs> of things yeah um so yeah, he goes back into oh he goes back into uh, Phoebe's room and they dance a couple to a couple of songs, which is yeah. quite nice and it's quite sweet how Phoebe's okay at dancing and in between each song she freezes in position and waits for the she's, next one. She's absolutely selling it. I loved it. <laughs> I just love the sight of because in a sense that's that's the sight of a kid who's quite talented, yeah. working really hard at being talented at something where they're like kind of nope not moving, not moving. Yeah. Definitely set on this. You know, something that other people would treat in a quite f- like throwaway manner. She's kind of like, yeah, let's dance, <laughs> freeze. You know, like it, sh- like it showed me in the books, and go. Shortly after, uh, Holden, um, Phoebe's mum and dad return, and there's this sudden scramble for Holden to hide. And he, he's been he's been smoking in the room, so he sort of tries to waft that away and then hides in the cupboard. And it, oh man, a... that 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 is just if you want to sum up my problem with this book in or with this character in one little action, it's the fact that he's like he's come home and he's trying to be secretive, right? And he's an experienced smoker. This isn't just like the first fag he's ever had, and he's realised, oh shit, this stays in the. This is very, very, very smellable long after you've put it out. No, he really knows what this is like. And he still thinks a crucial part of stealthily sneaking into his family home, talking to his eight-year-old sister and then leaving again, is to have a smoke in the bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) What is the fucking matter with you, you idiot? (laughs) Just don't have a smoke. (laughs) Phoebe takes it like a champ, though. She covers for him. When her mum comes (laughs) in and says, I can smell smoke, she's like, oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, You know, it was me. Yeah. Uh, you so, know, eight years old. It's what I do. <laughs> yeah. Um, just before Holden leaves, Holden's he's not got much money left now, and Phoebe gives him her Christmas money. Um, oh, Phoebe, what a hero! Is, Phoebe, yeah. Phoebe's running away with this book in terms of the audience has yeah. been waiting for somebody to care about for two hundred pages. She's there. Yeah. Phoebe's ready to take up that mantle. And there's this quite sad moment where he just breaks down, doesn't he? Because it's yeah. it's just all getting a bit too much for him, and he starts yeah. crying in the room. Yeah, which is yeah. Uh, which is quite sad. Yeah, uh, it is, and I, but I think it's really important because it's for me anyway. Like I say, it's too easy for me to treat Holden as sort of a cretin, and <laughs> and it's these moments of kind of where you actually see him express some emotion where you're like, oh, I get it. You know, mm. not the ones where he's telling you about the emotions, but the ones where you're seeing him kind of experience them 
I think those yeah. are really important moments, and the only reason that I kept reading, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, um, chapter twenty-four. We dig a d- bit deeper with Holden. He goes to visit this guy called Mister Mister Antolini. Uh, <laughs> Antolini opens the door in his dressing game with a highball glass in his hand. <laughs> he's obviously just been the end of a big party because his, his wife's well, clearing up as well. Welcome so to the 1950s, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is just spectacularly 1950s, isn't it? Um, and he comes in, and it, also part of this weird you know, sign of the times is the fact that, once again, Holden can just go round to a teacher's house and be invited in for a chat. Doesn't Holy God! Honestly, if that if if I mean uh, knowing a few teachers, if that sort of thing happened, kid finds out where you live and comes around late at night, you <laughs> hide inside and make like the police have come to take you away, just <laughs> because they will if you let them in. Do you know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> just whatever you do, don't don't display any kind of human kindness to mm. a teenager. Um, and but it's the, uh, it's yeah, you're right. Different age, isn't it? And, the and as side, we see later on, probably necessary. I mean, yeah. it's probably necessary that we are the way we are now, which is really sad. Yeah, well, yeah, I was going to say, there's the other side, is this, if uh, a teacher, if a teacher did turn up at a teacher's house, you the, you could forgive the teacher for the first thing they're thinking is, um, oh, this puts me in an awkward position if people start asking questions as why this put, you know, it's immediately yeah. assumed there must be something dodgy going on, isn't it? No. Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And sad sign of the times, really, but, mm. um, well, I mean, and we will discuss this in a second because I think this mm. is one of the really interesting things about this section. But, um, yeah. but I mean, let's let's get to it first. Yeah. So Holden, as he as he sits down, realizes he's getting this increasingly strong headache now. It's basically a hangover because he got wrecked about six hours ago, didn't he? And it's <laughs> coming back to bite him now. I thought it was yeah. interesting that he um, he remarks on how strange how strange the relationship between Mister Antolini and his and his other half is. Because they yeah. kiss each other in public, which yeah. he, he seems to consider very odd. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is what looking bohemian looked like back then, isn't it? You've got the same dressing gown, the same highball glass, you throw the same parties, but you show affection in public. Yeah. You communists! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. something, something very, very, very suspicious about these this couple. They're kissing yeah. in public. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Not to be trusted. Not to be, <laughs> it's downright un-American to show... You know, human warmth in public. Yeah. This is 1951. <laughs> There's this, the closest we get to a tough intervention, really, with Holden here, where um, Mr. Antolini says that he, he's very fond of him, but he thinks he's, he's heading for a fall. And what he means oh. by that is he thinks there's a danger of Holden becoming this sort of bitter and miserable old person. Um, yeah, yeah. Because it, and it's sort of he's at this crucial tipping point where he can go one of two ways: he can give up on the world, or he can he can actually try and positively change it. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought there was an interest. There's an interesting quote. He, he quotes this guy called Wilhelm Steckel or Steckel, and mm-hmm. um, he says the mark of an immature man is he wants to die nobly for a cause, or the mark of the mature man is he wants to live humbly for one. And he says this is his sort of big lesson as to what Holden should be doing now and that a lot of the sort of the the a lot of youthfulness is is wasted on the former and mm. uh, mat- maturity comes when you sort of accept the latter what did you make of that well i mean i thought that i i think that's that's an absolutely true statement uh, about about wisdom and you know that was that was similar sentiments were kind of bandied around immediately after 
uh, September the 11th and in the kind of the ensuing kind of global wars that, that happened yeah. um, and are still happening, you know, is the idea that, you know, actually martyrdom is not an, a not an honourable thing in comparison with, you don't want to die for your cause, you want to live for it, surely. Hmm. You know, to die for it is to give up any chance of seeing it come. And to live for it is to is to give you know your you know the eighty years of your life to actually making a difference, mm. and and you know and I actually think that's a fantastic argument. I think it's enormously important that people um, live for their beliefs instead of dying for them. I think dying for your beliefs is important, but I think yeah, like I, that principle, I just absolutely. I absolutely love because I think it leads to less death, which I think is desirable. So I was I was on board here. I had I had a bit of an Atticus Finch kind of vibe going on here. I was like, yes, bit of advice. Go on, mm. give him some, give him the good stuff. Yeah, and he, he's basically saying what you need to do is find ways to positively channel this behaviour. And he says, you know, you you won't be the first or the last person to decide this sickened by human behaviour, yeah. but it's yeah, how yeah, you deal yeah. with it, which which sort of decides what kind of a person you'll become and i think that's a really really important kind of um uh kind of lesson in, in growing up in a sense isn't it is like okay so you, you you know you go from this innocence to loss of innocence to the betrayal of realizing that everything that people have told you was being told to you by extremely fallible human beings but if you stay there you just kind of stay in this endless kind of adolescent bitterness revving your wheels and 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 kind of you know loving your moral outrage whereas to kind of acknowledge to accept that you're not the first to feel this way and try and move past it i think is a much bigger is a, is a really important step uh, the one of the other things he says which is slightly stranger uh, is this idea of everybody's mind is suited to a certain amount of knowledge and you you basically clothe your mind as you get and as you get older and get more mature you work out what kind of concepts that your brain can handle effectively and what things are beyond you and you work around hmm. that what what do hmm. you make of that one uh that felt a little bit more a little bit less timeless wisdom and, and a little bit more 1950s pop psychology there like yeah. <laughs> that felt a bit like i mm, I think there are certain things that can occur which prevent people from ever even asking themselves the question and the very idea of a kind of hierarchy of mindfulness. I think that while that may exist, I think by far the most limiting factor is the extent to which people are told by people they trust that they're capable of things, Mm. you know? You know, I think, yeah. you know, you know, if we want to talk about B grade minds and A grade minds, I think the difference is probably how much somebody has thought it was OK to develop themselves mm. um, far more than, you know, kind of there being an inbred thing about you're just a bit thick. Get used to it and read the Beano. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's not I, I don't buy that at all as a theory of social psychology, but. It's funny because it's it's a it's a theory that's become very unfashionable, hasn't it? I think it's partly due to the fact that, well, what happened <clears throat> sort of five ten years before this book is set, because this this kind yeah, of thing is well, only exactly, a, on, right? it's only like a sidestep from eugenics, really, isn't it? The fact that you're naturally yeah. predisposed to being intelligent or not, or being a certain type of person or not. Yeah, um, yeah. And yeah, I think I think it's it's interesting because it's still quite a. Um, difficult thing for modern science and sociology and psychology to to grapple with you know, this yeah. nature versus nurture kind of concepts 
um, very much, very, very much. Um, sorry, but, but but yeah, the I'd, I'd say that the the pendulum is in the last century swung much more towards the nurture side than nature. Maybe it was a bit bit the other way when when this book was set. Still, oh, it's interesting though, isn't it? Because I mean. In some senses, it has in terms of like intelligence and 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 merit and kind of capacity and ability and so on. We're very much in a nurture place, right? But mm. in other senses, you know, particularly with regard to sexuality, you know, the big revolution of the last fifty years has been the acceptance of of uh, the fact that it's that sexuality is inborn rather than yeah, chosen or true. developed. And actually, I mean, it's it's a very interesting, it's a very difficult discussion to engage in, obviously, as a straight white male, but um. Uh, but I, I do find it quite interesting, and I think I think this, you know, this book sits at the start of a fault line, which I think is still running through the way we talk talk now. And I don't think the existence of that fault line has to be a problem. By the way, I just think it's really mm. it's really interesting. I think the more discussion there is around it, the better off we are. But yeah. Um, shortly after this discussion, Holden's struggling to concentrate on it, and I mean, it's some pretty big topics as we've just discussed. So you feel for him a bit because this this lad's been he's effectively been up for about forty eight hours now, <laughs> and he's hung over. <laughs> he's yeah. trying to have this deep philosophical discussion. <laughs> if you had to choose a time for a, a trusted mentor to come into your life with some sage and timely advice, it would not be at the end of forty eight hours of being awake, sleeping rough in New York, and drinking heavily. <laughs> at the end of that, at the end of that, even Plato would have been like, "What? I don't hmm. understand you. I no, it's complicated. I don't understand. You know, just fuck off till I've had an Alka-Seltzer, right?" <laughs> yeah. So he, he goes to sleep um, in the spare room or in the living room, the polite bed, mm. and he he wakes up to find um, Mr. Antolini sort of stroking his bro, like um, running his hand across his bro, and he he sort of. <laughs> He jumps up and is like, "What the fuck are you doing?" And then gets yeah. out of there very quickly. He freaks out. Yeah, and, yeah. And um, and we're this is interesting because it's it's hard to really know for sure what's happening here, isn't oh, it? Or yeah. is it? Well, well, I mean, so this was very difficult for me because I was I was thinking because of what I thought about the the James Castle stuff. And, mm. and the various other traumas that, you know, we've kind of had glimpses of in Holden's life. Holden, and actually there's a moment where he says in this sequence, I can't tell you that that kind of thing must have happened to me 20 times. Yeah, I, I made and, a note of that. How strange. Yeah, well, I, but I think that's actually a really key sentence to kind of understand. Mm. Sure, clearly, Holden thinks that this is an inappropriate sexual advance from an older person, from an older trusted male authority figure. And yeah. and he goes from unconscious to that so quickly that I think it's reasonable to say that, you know, this isn't the first time that he's experienced something like that. And then he goes on to say that and you're like, all right. So is this somebody acting out of their trauma and misinterpreting something or is this somebody bang on interpreting the fact that Antolini, for all of his nice avuncular advice, mm. is trying it on? Mm. And and I th- and it's difficult to do from this distance because there's other stuff that Holden does in this book, which is really, really weird it, by our standards. Like how he uh, later on, he's walking through a museum with a couple of boys. They come up to him and say, you know, where's this exhibit? And he says, I will show you. And so he's wandering through the museum with two boys that he doesn't know, these two children. And nowadays, that will get you arrested. But back then, maybe it was perfectly normal. So 
I'm kind of trying to triangulate whether Ansolini is being just a bit odd, sure, mm. um, but you know within within what was kind of benign for that culture, mm. or or if he really is trying it on and Holden's absolutely bang on the money. What do you think? Yeah, I think you've summed it up really nicely, actually. And and Holden has this internal conflict himself in the next chapter. He's trying to work out whether... He's, he's questioning whether it was an overreaction on his part or whether it was this, as he says, flitty, sort of flitty pass at him. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, it's it's strange. And you're right, even by today's standards, it's odd if that was yeah. to happen, isn't it? And even more yeah. so now in, in the sort of... Because we're much more suspicious about adults and children interaction. Mm-hmm. But... Um, but it's it's funny because I think the if he wanted to, the author could have been more explicit as to what this is. Yeah. Uh, and he almost I think he deliberately leaves it fairly ambiguous and it it becomes a really interesting talking point, but it's very hard to get a read on what this character of Antolini is is genuinely like. Is he Yeah. Is he as you as you said, is he genuinely a decent guy and he's just sort of he cares about him and this is just the way it manifests itself or is it something more sinister? And there's no way of knowing now, is there? Well, exactly. And the thing is that maybe, I mean, this is this is really heartbreaking, um, but maybe that's just an accurate, interp- accurate depiction of what a sexual predator is like anyway and mm. what, what it's like to kind of suffer that is, you know, if somebody says, you know, with the voice of plausibility and authority... You know, oh, he's just misunderstood me. Um, you know, it's well documented that one of the really horrifying things is that often people don't believe you, mm. and um, and 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 you know, layered on top of that is the fact that you don't know whether you believe yourself. Mm. Um, and so and so that was a bit of a thing. I'll tell you what I where I landed for this ultimately was when Antolini's kind of kind of trying to explain himself as while Holden's kind of freaking out and running away, he starts making extremely assertive command statements. Instead mm. of kind of acknowledging that Holden's allowed to do whatever he's allowed to do and that's fine, he starts saying, get back in bed, get back in bed, which mm. to me smacks of somebody either panicking and trying to get the situation under control, mm. I mean panicking because they're, they're, you know, they're being wronged, or somebody who really is trying to exert an... Uh, uh, an unhealthy and inappropriate kind of influence sort of thing. Mm. Um, And so I, so ultimately I kind of, I landed on, I think Antolini is a bit too shifty here. And like I said, at the start of this scene, I was agreeing with the advice he was giving. So Mm. I went, I was really, I was really gutted to have to land there, but it's the way he acts in the, in the, in the heat of the moment where I'm like, you are a shifty son of a bitch. Mm. That's, that's where I landed on it in the end. But I mean, who can say, yeah, yeah, and it it can be. It can, I think it's one of those ones. It can be interpreted either way, can't it? Quite mm. quite easily. So uh, the next the next chapter. So he leaves and he goes to uh, Grand Central Station, uh, the railway station, and sleeps in the waiting room. Uh, mm. And yeah, he has this period where he just thinks about what's happened, tries to work out whether he'd overreacted or whether he was right to get out of there, mm. and. Um, Later on, he gets back on the train. He's reading this depressing magazine, which mm. uh, talks about bad hormones and cancer, and he thinks he's probably got both. 
just from the tone of the article, which is it's a classic. Some things never change. You can still get those magazines these days. It just warns you all the different diseases you're going to get. I was thinking, particularly because it was talking about cancer, I was like, I didn't know they published the Daily Mail in New York back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so he has this, uh, this thought, this decision, I suppose, that he's going to run away now. He's mm. he's had enough. I think I suppose he was on a on a tightrope in the last chapter, and he was getting all this advice about how to w- become more positive, and that's just snapped now after his experience. And mm. he decides he's going to run away, and mm. the only person he wants to say goodbye to is Phoebe. Mm. So he goes to Phoebe's school to pass a note on, basically to get her to meet him later. And while he's there, he sees quite a few examples of this graffiti where people have written "fuck you" on the wall, and he's <laughs> he's, re- he's really shocked, and he tries to take it off. He tries to sort of rub it out because he hates yeah. the idea of little kids walking past and seeing it. Yeah, Again, yeah, it's that yeah. attempt to protect children, isn't it? Which he Absolutely. finds very important. Yeah, yeah, and um, I, I quite like this. I think this is as close as the book comes to a sort of thematic crescendo. Whereas after he's had this a couple of places, you know, he walks, he sees it in the school and tries to rub out and it doesn't come out and he walks somewhere else and it's there again. And then he <laughs> says something like, I forget what the wording is, but he's like, um, uh, that's the thing with the world. You don't know when you're next going to see a big sign saying, fuck you. <laughs> and, and I thought that was absolutely magnificent because it, because that's how you feel when you're 17 and things aren't going your way. And, yeah. you, you know, you kind of come into terms with the fact that the world genuinely might be full of malevolence rather than benevolence. Um, and that was a, a particularly pithy and erudite way of putting that problem, and I liked it a lot. Mm. Um, uh, <laughs> I also, i tell you what I thought as well, was I realised about 15 years after this, if not more, in the UK, Lady Chatterley's Lover wasn't published because it contains the word fuck. Mm. And so I read this and I was like, oh, has this been... Has this been updated somehow? Because I couldn't believe the idea of it being published in the US 15 years earlier with that language intact. And it was interesting because I swear quite a lot, as you may have noticed. And so, like, that doesn't have the same power for me, that word, particularly, as it it does for other people, and certainly as it did back then. So it was a really interesting thing that I still managed to get back into the mindset, you know, know, of, of what it was like back then from a sort of, historical geek kind of perspective (laughs) um but that was interesting that it's incredible like you know almost unmentionably strong language for a book published in this era yeah i think the funniest thing about it as well is he thinks (laughs) there's fuck you signs everywhere in the world and he says he's pretty sure that when he dies on his gravestone, someone will have scrolled. <laughs> Fuck you. Here lies Holden Caulfield. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Which would be okay. quite a good epitaph for him, considering what his, his approach to the world for most of the book. Absolutely, absolutely. He's, um, uh, you know, and this is from the Revel Without a Cause era, you know, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? <laughs> um, and that's kind of where Holden Caulfield is, isn't it? But, um, but. I did like that was one of the times where I thought Holden Colville was genuinely hilarious. The other time was early on in the book where uh, I fell on him like a goddamn panther. <laughs> yeah, that was also excellent. <laughs> that was a great line. It's just once or twice he comes across an absolute piece of rhetorical gold and I love it. Yeah. Um he he's so exhausted. I mean he he got a couple of hours in um he got, I think he got about an hour sleep at Antolini's before he had to leave. And he got mm. a couple of hours in this cold waiting room, and he's obviously right at the limit of his his uh, his 
strength now, and he actually mm. faints at this at this point and passes out for a while. Because um, yeah. it, it's almost like that on The Sims, where you got the the red exhaustion bar and the, and the <laughs> character just <laughs> slumps on the ground and sleeps. Do you know what? Do you know what? In a million years, I would not have made that comparison between <laughs> The Sims and The Catcher in the Rye. And that's why I love doing this podcast. <laughs> so he's he's waiting for Phoebe. Uh, to cut to say goodbye to her, and she's late. He thinks he starts to think maybe she's not going to turn up at all, and she does turn up, but she's carrying a suitcase because she's decided to, to. If he's leaving, she's going to leave with him, which Was is it? this really sweet little moment, isn't it? Especially, and it's done. It's done very well because we've spent this time to, with those two together, and mm. you've really you you really come to like Phoebe. It's a really, it's really believable and really sweet moment, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and for some reason, I didn't think Phoebe... I, I thought the idiot in this scene was not Phoebe, but Holden. Despite <laughs> the fact that Holden's a grown-up and Phoebe's eight. Yeah. Um, uh, but it just... There was a bit of me that seeing how she's acted, I'm like, yeah, he probably needs your love, to be honest. I mean, yeah. you shouldn't go. You should be in school. But I completely understand your reasoning here. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you, th- this is emphasised as well because, I mean, Holden is is furious when he finds out that she's trying to come with him, but um, but she convinces it's the moment where he's convinced not to go, and I think part of it is the fact that he thinks she obviously does need him around, then also he needs her, um, mm. when she gives him back his hunting hat while he's sitting watching her on the carousel, because uh, mm. they go to the zoo and then this this fairground which is there as well, and mm. um. And it sort of protects him from the rain a bit, and it's just this—it's this whole chapter is a lovely moment between the two characters where you realise that they they do depend on each other. And Holden, it's not as simple as he can't just give everything up and run away because that isn't mm. really the answer either, is it? Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, it's yes, I agree. I have nothing more to add to that. I agree. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chapter 26, the final chapter, basically a little epilogue. He says, um, that's that's about it, basically, in his <laughs> typical sort of tone. That's all, I, yeah, that's all I really want to talk about. Um, I could tell you more, but uh, I don't really want to. Uh, and For fuck's sake, Holden, you're a character <laughs> in a work of literature. Like, <laughs> unless you have something more meaningful to say to me than, oh, no, fuck off. <laughs> don't fucking bother. Well, he, oh, he does, this this ending made me angry. Honestly, he does. He does say at the end that um, he's he realizes that he misses a lot of the people that he's spoken about in the book that mm. he's written about, and uh, he has this advice at the end. The last couple of lines are: "Don't ever tell anybody anything. If you do, you start missing everybody." And I, I suppose it's part of this. Part of what he's been running away from is he doesn't like creating these connections with people does he you can see it in his like attitude towards school friends and the only people mm. he's really had connection with are his immediate family his brothers and sisters mm-hmm. and when he when he has those connections he, he, he decides it makes him vulnerable and you can see mm. why you think that because the the biggest tra- most traumatic event in his life so far has been losing his brother yeah yeah uh, yes but <laughs> uh, 
it was you can say the most profound thing in the universe but if you say it in a petulant tone of voice it's not going to be heard and that's my problem with this is that there might be a kernel of something in that and i'm usually the guy who's all up for digging into the sort of meaning of what people are saying and in books trying to understand where they're going and, and all of that sort of thing like i'm up for it like i'm i'm you know they they had me at hello if i'm reading the book but Holden Caulfield has been so consistently a petulant, whiny, irritating, unself-conscious voice with all the narrative thrust of a fucking bowl of jelly that I've ended up just being like, I don't care what you've got to say, Holden, fuck it. Like, like the last place you needed to leave it was here in this chapter. Earlier on, there have been moments where I've been like, I see where you're going and I see just shots of light through the darkness where I'm like kind of, oh, I see. And then he goes and ends on something pointless like this chapter. And I was just, I, uh, I just, I, I honestly, I felt nothing but contempt for this last chapter. And that was really <laughs> sad because I saw opportunities through the book this time that it could have been something other than that. But in the end, I still landed on this sort of... Because that's clearly what Salinger wants it to be, is everything I'm hating in the book. What I want it to be is a more interesting examination of the character with slightly better language use. And the writing, by the way, is all to cock in this book. I still think that. <laughs> the prose. And, 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 but it, and he's given us moments where the character might start to make sense, might start to be somebody I can empathise with. But then he dumps us back into this sort of penny ante moralizing and philosophizing where i don't care holden and yet you're asking me to and i was just i was oh the, the sense of disappointment i felt at the end of this chapter was just unbelievable <laughs> so would you have rather seen him have this big epiphany and turn around into somebody else no, but I would rather have had him exercise a little bit of... Because I think it's unrealistic that there's a character who's so totally tied to his one weakness, which is this lack of presence of mind, that he never actually critiques it. He never learns from it. Not even a little. I don't need... I, you know, I'm not a big fan of Hollywood endings where, oh, you know, or the, the classic Nick, Nick, Hornby, uh, Nick Hornby bit where it's like, and that was it. That was when I realised. Everything was easily explicable by these two things, which is a joke, by the way, copyright Mitchell and Webb. Um, yeah. but, but that, I'm not a fan of that sort of thing at all. I find that very cheap. But at the same time, I found this really irritating, where as far as I can tell in the course of the book, he hasn't moved an inch from his fundamental problem as I see it, which is this kind of flyby-night inability to treat himself like a human being. And, mm. and, and it's not that that's kind of been... I don't think that's been beaten into him or beaten out of him. I just think he can't be asked. And at that point, I start going, well, why should I be asked? You know? Mm. Yeah, I, I would say that he's he's discovered something about himself here in the last couple of chapters with Phoebe, though. And he that he does have... What's that? More of a, that, that he does have more of a connection with the things around him than maybe he thought and with people and that you can have these sort of close connections. And I don't know, because I mean, but he went back to Phoebe because he already felt that kind of close connection. So he's just sort of circling the drain here. You know, he's just going back around all the places and things looking to have confirmed all of the poorly thought through opinions he formed without a moment's thought the first time round. Hmm. You know, like that's yeah. how I felt. I felt like he hadn't developed here. But I, I think the, the conversation he had with Phoebe, maybe the, the chapter before where he's talking about what he wants to be and he... May I think he's he has found something out about himself there, even though 
he doesn't you know he's still he's, he's not going to change his mind on the whole world and he's mm. still got a lot of growing up to do hasn't he mm. and he's not going to have these big this big change in his mm. life in 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 the in the space of three days he's not going to go from one person to a completely different one mm-hmm. but I, I think there are some reasons for optimism with him there and I, I, I thought I quite I thought it was interesting how it, it is a mm. sort of a very unusual ending because it's nothing that you expect I mean the, the thing that I was quite surprised about is having read all this will I, won't I, in his own head about what he's going to do with this Jane girl. Mm. Um, nothing happens with yeah. it. It just disappears. Yeah. And there's a bit of me that's like, that can't be, that can't fail to be deliberate. J.D. Salinger is too talented a writer not to do that deliberately, which makes yeah. me, which just makes me feel like I've been yanked around. Because he's clearly, and if you do it once, you do it once, you have one instance of this in your book, then fine. You know, I'm going to raise a narrative thread, I'm going to leave it lying there to make a point about the lost narrative threads of our lives. Fine. Don't mm. do that with every other fucking paragraph which is what he's done in this book it's just a long sequence of episodic nonsense and that's fine (laughs) if it's happening to a compelling central character but this isn't this is happening to holden coalfield who whines because he can't think of anything else to say Mm. i disagree with that i think he is compelling i think i think he is an interesting character because and and it's what we what we went back to in the we've talked about it more in the first and second part this idea of him being uh he he has this disconnection with the world and this coldness but also you can see through especially his interactions with phoebe that there is some warmth there which he the mask slips sometimes and you see you see sort of the real person behind it as well and this this conflict he's having with himself trying to reconcile those two parts which is just the very essence of of adolescence and growing up yeah, I you know you make that point extremely well, and I think that's good, and I think that's what I haven't been majoring on in the last half of this is that there are moments where I see that in his character as a kind of static object, but that's in a in a sense that's why I'm so frustrated. Come the end of the books, I feel like that thread is another one that's been abandoned, if you like, and that we've ended up back on this thing where Holden just kind of you know, intellectually scratches himself and looks at the ceiling and decides to do nothing. Whereas there was another thread in this which was hugely compelling about adolescence and the definition of your life and the decisions that you make. And, and you know, and and the fact that particularly in adolescence, we change all the time. And so I really don't, because the book ends where it ends, I don't see that Holden's changed at all. So mm. I find that I feel that untrue to life, you know, for all that the angst and the disgust with the adult world and so on is very true to life and very well sketched. I find the fact that his his character is basically completely static all the way through. I find that I find that completely untrue to life. Uh, If you're writing about adolescence of all people, things change every every day. Um, and it and it hasn't come across all of that. Sorry, that did start off as agreeing with you. By the way, I did fundamentally. I agree with you about the character. I think the character as a as a portrait is well sketched. It's just over the whole course of the book. I'm just mm-hmm. like, you know, I, I he doesn't go where I think I think I I wanted him to. I, he doesn't go anywhere, and I wanted him mm-hmm. to go somewhere. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a question of what you expect the book to do and whether it's enough for the book to do what it does because yeah, on the one yeah. hand you yeah you could tell a story which is about growing up 
And that would mean you start from being immature and having these various problems, which obviously Holden has, to becoming a properly rounded adult. And that you're right, that doesn't happen in this book. And um, if that's what the book was trying to do, then I, I, I agree it's, a, it's failed in that. But I, I think what it what it does do well, and this maybe is what it maybe the, what he was aiming for, is not so much to show the journey between the two, but just a snapshot of being an adolescent and being in that sort of frame of mind. And I think it works very well in that sense, in that this works as a as a window into what it's like when you're you're in the middle of that sort of turmoil and that sort of cusp of between adulthood and childhood. And I think that is what's so great about the book. But um, if you're expect, expect, expecting it to to t- tell you the whole curve and show you sort of a journey from being a, a child to being an adult, you're right, it doesn't do that. And maybe it needed to be set over a longer period. Maybe you'd need to see Holden go from being 16 to being 22 rather than hmm. three or four days of his life yeah, as a 17-year-old. Yeah, 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 I mean, that's true. And um, But I... I don't know. I I don't think I was. I'm not saying that it should show X or it should show Y. I'm not trying to get them get JD Salinger to deliver me a conventional narrative here necessarily. I'm just saying when you when you when you structure a book a certain way and have certain events happen through plot and through character and through prose style and rhythm and everything, you create a world. And I think. You do that on purpose, and you do that in order to say something. And I'm not seeing what Salinger has said here, other than that teenagers are extremely conflicted, which is just the most no-shit Sherlock statement I could ever make. So because this is supposed to be a masterpiece, I'm going, yeah, right, but there's something else here, isn't there, John? No? Mm. No? Just mm. just that? Just, just Biker Grove? Fuck off, then. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, teen... Tea time serials do this fact with actually a great deal more narrative compulsion. And so so I find myself like, if that's all he was trying to say, I think he's got lamentably low ambition because he was clearly had deeper thoughts on it than your average Biker Grove writer. Yeah, but I, I don't think your typical teen character is anywhere near as believable as... as, <laughs> as <laughs> well, now, all right. Now, you're on to something there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That... that yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, he, uh, as as I say, I have no problem with with Holden as sketched. It's Holden as plotted that I'm complaining about. Yeah, and I think that's the that's the key point. I suppose there's, um, the what what the book does well is it's get. I think I think it creates a very believable and, and uh, adolescent, and it gives you and it gets you into his head. And the question is, is that enough to make it a good book? And I think, yeah. I I think. It is, and I think you think that it needs to have something more yeah. than that. I, so, and it depends. I, I agree. You, no, yeah. I have. I've read other books where that is done really well, and gives me a feeling of um, uh, what's a good example? Oh, perfume. You ever read perfume? No. I, I don't want to spoil it for you, but the central character in that is is every bit as conflicted uh, as uh, as as Holden. Actually, a lot more repugnant, and he doesn't really change. Um, but you just sort of luxuriate in the experience of that character. You know, even though even though what he's doing is is quite bad, there's just something about seeing the portrait. It's like being close to a painting where you're drawn in and you say, "Oh, that shade. Oh, and that shade. Oh, and that shade. Oh, interesting." You know, and you just you just appreciate it for its sheer construction. 
Mm. So I have read books where that occurs. I just don't think this is one of them. Um, mm. But then again, maybe, maybe this is all just down to the prose. Maybe I would feel that way if Salinger had written in a more kind of flowery or verbose way, because I've got a bit of a weakness for that. Um, mm. And the fact that he talks in these like limited vocabulary, stuttering sentences where everything's everything's a right, uh, everything kills him, and and everything's quite this and 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 you know very very that, and maybe it was all of that that just alienated me from it. You know, doesn't even have doesn't even have the the compositional nous of a good of a good portrait mm-hmm. um so maybe man, you know, maybe it's just that um all of that said i don't regret reading the thing mm-hmm. <laughs> because i think you know i'm always i i'm i'm in a sense i always want to be wrong um when i haven't liked a book i want to come back to it and discover and i have discovered things in it and i'm really glad about that because you and everybody else in the universe thinks this is a masterpiece i think this is a seriously flawed masterpiece the queen mary hold under the waterline but the queen mary nonetheless yeah i i would say i mean i don't think it's a, an absolute masterpiece but i think it's a good book mm. um and that there's probably a you know there's a, there's a difference between the the two so i you know i wouldn't i i I wouldn't be one of those people who place it on the ten greatest books of all time or ten you know, books. <laughs> I think, but I do think it's a you know I do think it's a, a good read, and I'll, I expect I will read it again at some point, you mm-hmm. know, quite happily. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is yeah. So I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a, it's an absolute masterpiece, but there are a few people who do. It's, yes. we're, it's time for us to reach the reviews here, Excellent. and uh, what we do now there's we we either we have a we normally have a couple sent in and then we, we sort of put a few from around the internet, a few of the best reviews from the internet. It's always just normal people. It's never any critics. Mm. It's just bog standard. Someone's read it and this is what they think of it. Uh, we like to we like to pick the polemic. So we've got some five stars and some one star reviews which have been given <laughs> because to Because nuance book. is for shits. Yeah, we often, we often have a couple of more nuanced ones as well, but I, I think... <laughs> this time we're probably closer towards the the love or hate. I mean, again, capturing the rise. One of those ones we've read, which is a bit of a marmite book, isn't it? You don't get many people who think it's okay. You either yeah, love it or you hate yeah, it. that's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we start with a couple of five stars. I'm interested to get your thoughts on these. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want to hear it. Um, this is one person who it looks like has read it when they were a teenager at school because they had to. Mm. and hated it and then read it again when they were older and actually liked it um, ah so like the anti-me i imagine yeah. this person looking like me but with a really big goatee <laughs> like the, the the parallel universe version of me with a with a soul patch with a soul patch oh man <laughs> heaven forfend if you're out there mystery reviewer don't grow a soul patch whoever you are yeah okay well it's tom and he says um I swear books like these are always best when you read them willingly. I'd say that about all books, really. Yeah, that's um, true. Uh, Is there anything it, that's better when it's done unwillingly? <laughs> coerced into reading it. <laughs> I had to be coerced into reading this, and that's why I enjoyed it so much. <laughs> that's why it's the masterpiece it is. <laughs> he, says, uh, he says it's better when you read them as a more mature and better read person. He says Holden's so mm. full of rage, anger, and hatred... But he also has this genuine—he has this genuine dislike of everything. And yet, even though he's miserable and unhappy, uh, he takes time to tell us what it's like to hold hands with a special girl, how their hands were made to hold each other's, and you get to see that this highly guarded there's this highly guarded tenderness to him as well. And that's what mm. Tom really likes about the book, which I think we've we've 
we've touched on already, isn't it? This this idea about how there's a warmer side to him, which you do see every so often. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's completely undeniable, and that that was what was interesting to me in the character because he wasn't just a one note, you know, scream of angst. He was, you know, there was another note in the mix there, and it was this kind of warmth and, mm. you know, desire to look after people, after which, you know, in the end, the book was actually named. So, you know, that's clearly supposed to be a big part of his character. Mm. Um, so the nuance between those pieces, and also, you know, this possibility of, of a traumatic past, I think, makes Holden as a character really interesting. Mm. There's a, a five-star from a guy called Monty, and this is really interesting because something we haven't considered... But he says to me, Catherine the Rye is... Sorry, go on. I was going to say, it's not a sci-fi allegory thing, is it? It's not, this, <laughs> is, this, is, this is all about like the possibility of a moon landing or a, a riff on the presidency of James... Uh, James somebody Hamilton. That was, that was the one. No? Interestingly, no. <laughs> uh, he, he says, to me, the Catherine the Rye is half about teenage coming-of-age angst and half about a kid struggling against the downward spiral of his mental illness. Without yeah. professional help, he was doomed to submerge and did. Uh, oh, I'm not sure about and did, but I definitely see that reading of his of his of his thing. Mind you, I've been banging on about there being no change. I can't say no change occurs while somebody's on a downward spiral. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, so maybe not. But no, I, I don't. I'm not certain that I see how he did in the end. Um, mm. But because uh, at the end of it. For me, the message is he's just gone back to the same life he despises and that nothing's had any effect on him. Mm. Um, but I definitely, I mean, this is what I'm talking about with trauma, you know, this kind of, I, I think there are things in Holden's past which are which are causing him to be um, curtailed in his environment. Mm. Um, and that, I, I agree with that completely, actually. I just, mm. I, like I said, the narrative art of the book just pissed me off so much because it wasn't really about that, as far yeah. as I could tell. The second part of Monty's review, I suspect you won't agree quite so much with, where he uh, says, uh, the book is a masterpiece of art and insight. Who will ever get into the head of a teenage boy so deeply, so thoroughly, and with such an authentic and authoritative voice? That's baker, 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 Grove! <laughs> That's who, Apart Matt. from Biker Grove. Apart from Biker <laughs> fucking Grove. Uh, Ty- Tyler says five stars and a perfect book but I do have problems with how many people maybe even most people insist on judging it as an adult novel when it's probably one of the first and best examples of teen fiction I don't care what Salinger intended this is a teen hmm. novel everyone should read this book when they're saying goodbye to their adolescence they should think of Holden with affection but bid him farewell and get on with it <laughs> that's an interesting way of passing it so that it's because, you know, I, I think there's nothing in Holden, the character, that invites you to move on. Mm. <laughs> it just invites you to stay pickled in your own angst forever, the same way as Holden does. Um, yeah. I, and as for a near-perfect novel, I'm afraid we must agree to disagree at length. <laughs> <laughs> How about the distinction he, he very clearly draws there between... He says, I think, it isn't a perfect novel, but it's a near-perfect teen novel. As in, well, it, it, it speaks what... to teenagers very well. What do you think about that? I'm not a fan of the distinction between novel and teen novel. The same way I think young adult fiction is is young adult. The difference in young adult fiction and a grown up thriller is that you put a more colourful cover on it, and I think that's patronising in both directions. <laughs> um, and we'll come to that when at some point I imagine we'll end up doing Divergent or The Hunger Games or something like that. Mm, um, yeah. 
but um, uh, so I don't really know what definition of a teen novel he's working from there. Um, because, like I say, I actually don't think it's a novel that says, you know, this this was your teens, but now you can move on to something better. Because the only person who kind of talks in any, with any kind of broad angle lens in this is a guy who, odds are, is feeling holding up. So I, I really don't see how you can say that the trajectory lands it there at all. Hmm. Okay, what about Lena? Lena says, another five-star review, this book makes you think about life, how people react in social situations, how messed up society's standards of living are, lost innocence, death, and just being human. Holden's perspective at first baffled me, and I thought his thoughts were too scattered, but then I realised Salinger has captured the true essence of what it means and how <laughs> it feels to be a teenager. Mm. Yeah, well, if, uh, I definitely think that's what he was trying for, and I'm overjoyed if... Lena has experienced that um, but I didn't I thought he tried mm. to do that but what he ended up giving us was a smashed uh, was a, a smashed stained glass window and I was disappointed by it rather than illuminated okay very nicely put thank you off the top of my head that as well I should go into was this it? for a job it sounds, like, it sounds like you've been sort of you've been working that one up for a while it was, <laughs> it was carefully plotted it was nice okay um <laughs> Richard, we're on to the one stars now. Speaking of criticism. Oh, there um, we go. My brethren. Ri- <laughs> Richard is actually quite considered, and this is an interesting idea. I wonder what you'd like to get your thoughts on it. Richard mm-hmm. says, My theory with this book is, and it's unusual in polarizing nature, is this either you identify with Holden Caulfield or you don't. Those mm. who see themselves in Holden see a misunderstood warrior poet fighting the good fight <laughs> against. Fight- Fighting the good fight against a hypocritical and unfeeling world, they see yeah. Salinger as a genius because he gets it and he gets them. Mm. Those of us who don't relate to Holden see him as a self-absorbed whiner and in Salinger, <laughs> and in Salinger a one-trick pony who looked into performing his trick at a time when some large fraction of America happened to be in the right collective frame of mind to perceive this boring twaddle as subversive and meaningful. Absolutely. Print that out, put it on the front of every fucking copy in every fucking high school in the world. <laughs> Could not agree more. So uh so Richard uh, Richard's take is something you would you would support. Uh, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that review. <laughs> How about Madeline? Madeline says, In my hand I hold five dollars. I will give it to anyone who can explain the plot of this book or why there's no plot and make me understand why the hell people think it's so amazing. (laughs) Right. I'm not a fan of the I didn't like it so everybody's wrong conclusion to that. Um, But at the start of it, I think that's an extremely pertinent challenge. Not all novels have to be about plot, of course, and you can do a great deal without really writing any kind of a plot at all. I've read a lot of books that succeed at it, but I don't think this is one of them because it's it's episodic rather than... um, uh, What's the word for that? Um, it's not, they're not dioramas what you see in here you're not seeing hmm. perfectly pitched little moments which are which are kind of supposed to illuminate an overall image of, of an event or a person or a personality it's just then this happened then this happened then this happened why not and then this hmm. one he went there and then did that because I don't know why fuck it it's a modern novel I don't have to care and you just I just felt Salinger's lack of care frankly more than anything else behind this book i think it just felt like somebody had just just decided to knock in a few more swear words than was normal at the time and call it groundbreaking hmm. well i would take the five dollar challenge and i would say that it's the point of it 
as we said, as I said before, is to give you a snapshot into what it's like to be a teenager. And if mm. anyone came to me and said, you know, I don't understand what it's like being a teenager, or you know, my teenage son's so pissed off all the time, why? Mm. I'd suggest have a read it because it it does mm. give you a it does give you an insight into why teenagers are so pissed off with the world sometimes and with this mixture of of a ball of energy wanting to do things all the time and just wanting to reject all the things they see in the world as disappointing and and all this betrayal of adults being useless when i've been told since i was a tiny child that they always knew best yeah well yeah and i think I think it's good, but I think I, I think it, it would be useful for that. I think actually it does shed light on that particular mindset. I just don't think it sheds very good light on a particularly good example of that mindset. Um, but to a certain extent, what actually happens to Holden through the book kind of makes this teenagers a user's guide. And I mean that in the most pejorative sense. I just don't think it's, you know, I, I feel like it's, it, as well as everything else, since it was written by a man in his mid-30s, exploitative. <laughs> but... Okay. That, in what, in what way is it exploitative? Well, he was 30-whatever he was when he wrote it, wasn't he? He wasn't exactly going, this is what it's like to be a teenager. He was telling the teenagers of, America's, uh, of America, this is what angst is like. And as it turns out, they were buying. You know what I mean? It's mm. It's... it's but but sh- but surely for you know. for them to buy, he must have struck a nerve, and it must have some kind of truth to it. Uh, well, all right, that's undeniable. But I still think that you know, like broadly, it's like what's a good? It's like Fred Durst. Fred Durst, when Limp Biscuit was was successful, was in his early thirties. Do you know if you still you know you don't give a fuck about me, and I don't give a fuck about you, and fuck all the lot of you? Like that's not a meaningful voice. That's that's being a proper grown-up who's worked out how to get money out of kids. You know, I don't think J.D. Salinger would appear as a good guy in one of his own novels. Hmm, interesting. Because I think there's a there's a difference between people who do manage to connect to that kind of teen angst and the typical mid-30s, mid-40s marketing manager who tries <laughs> to create a viral video to sell stuff to the kids and just doesn't get it. And I and yeah, I yeah, and yeah. I have a, a lot more um I don't know, I, I have a lot more cynicism and uh towards the latter than 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 the former. And I think there's something to be said for managing to to sort of create that connection and, and write something that does that pe- people you know, teenagers do get and think, yeah, that does speak to me and I and I do think think that it's uh, something that helps me understand what I'm... Oh, I feel like this author understands yeah. what I'm going through as well. That is a very that is a very good argument, although I think if we're saying that what J.D. Salinger has managed to do here is maintain a higher level of integrity and truth-telling than a mid-40s marketing manager, that is the very definition of damning with faint praise. <laughs> <laughs> no, what, what, what I'm saying is that it's... Uh, it's an important book and a, and, a, and a good book insofar as a lot of teenagers, I think, especially ones who are really pissed off with everything, I think everything's crap, um, it speaks to them very well and it can be very helpful in, in helping them understand themselves and feel that other people mm-hmm. do understand them as well. And for that, mm-hmm. it's a very, it's a very very strong book. I, yeah, I'm certainly not going to say, I'm not about to say, you know, it's bad, nobody should read it, burn all the copies and the rest of it. I'm, I'm saying... <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was how you got to end the review, and I oh, decree a public burning. I a public burning. <laughs> In the name of the shark and shark liver oil, I declare. 
<laughs> he should no. do that. If we come across a really shit book, we'll declare a public <laughs> Just, burning of that's it. <laughs> oh yeah, Matt, that's the side we want to be on, the book burners. <laughs> come to your favourite book podcast where we talk about burning the shit ones. The ones we disagree with. The ones that just rubbed us up the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, because that's what we can say at the end of each book. We can say, is it going back on the shelf? Or is it going on the pyre? <laughs> 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 which which is the review that we we read once where it was that it was something like um oh no no i think it was that they said i don't know whether to burn it or celebrate it as the greatest book ever yeah yeah, said, yeah or you could just pop it back on the shelf <laughs> <laughs> secret option c <laughs> 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 that's what I do right. with all of these books I just pop them oh, back on the shelf just pop them back on the shelf either way yeah. um, I would like to make it clear I'm not advocating the burning of this book like I said <laughs> I, I do not think it should be burned I do not think it is bad and I do think that teenagers and everybody else will probably gain something from reading it what I'm what I'm exercised about what I'm angry about is the fact that it claims or it, it either claims to be or wants to be or has pretensions to be something which it um shrinks from being and it, it it lacks the profundity that i think it is capable of having you know you don't get pissed off at a bad book for being a bad book you get pissed off at a book could have been a great book for being less than that and that's kind of where i am with this mm. um orca says she doesn't start this click, review click, with click click how what <laughs> yeah. sorry she she doesn't start this book with a sigh but i think it should start this review with a sigh she, she says seventy four thousand words to express what could have been better done in about seven thousand four hundred and even that's being generous <laughs> end <laughs> and uh, the drops mic leaves room review our favorite yeah. our favorite genre there um, uh, yeah yeah well i don't know I, I i that's that's just not the way to attack it not you could have said it shorter um yeah uh although good point you know i i think i think a funnier way to write that would have been like what you could have said in one single three minute limp biscuit song but that <laughs> yeah. that would have been a little bit harsh i think uh, Cal, Cal says, "What a disappointment! Maybe I'd feel differently if I read it back in high school, but this crummy book just annoyed the hell out of me. It really did." <laughs> That's really funny, actually. That's yeah. extremely like we... good parodying <laughs> yeah. of Har- of Holden's voice. I was going to say, I like how he used his language against him. There. Yeah, so, you see, flip reversed yeah. it, didn't he? Yeah, word ninja. Um, okay, well we've. Uh, We've given this, I'd say, a mixed response overall. <laughs> um, I think still, like you say, you've seen what found one or two things to like about it, but I think we can oh, still safely say, yeah. yeah, we can still safely say that I enjoyed it a lot more than you did. But that's not to say that it's a great or a bad book either way. No, no, uh, no not at all. But we, I thought we could leave the final review to a guy called Mark, and thought this is interesting because he's he's a teenager it seems mm. and he says it's quite long so bear with me but it's All in right. two parts part one yeah, yeah. Um, he says today I'm 15 years old everything is all bullshit as usual I can't believe how fucked everything is around me like I'm surrounded by zombies I can't talk to my so called friends I can't talk to Jamie not sure who Jamie is I can't talk to my parents who wouldn't bother listening anyway I can't wait to leave Orange County I assume he lives in California this place makes me fucking sick everyone's a hypocrite everything's so goddamn bright and shiny and sunny and meaningless fuck life is so full of crap 
this is this is uh, obviously we're not onto the book just yet. Uh, <laughs> but then yeah. he says, uh, th- there is one good thing about my life though. Just read this book and I was blown away. I don't know how a book written decades ago could say exactly what I would say. It's like the author was reading my thoughts and put it all down in this book. Things I didn't even realize I felt were right there on the page. I loved it. And that's the end. You can't argue with that, can you? Absolutely can't argue with that. And the fact is that there's something truly beautiful about somebody coming across a book that like that speaks to them on a level they were just not expecting ever to experience and mm. fair play mark i disagree but bang on <laughs> mate carry on reading <laughs> fucking a fair play yeah. to you and I, th- I think that's probably sums it up well as well with catching the rise that it's it in my opinion anyway it's a very good book but with one caveat in that it's a very acquired taste and yeah. I think, like one of the earlier reviewers said, either you relate to Holden or you don't, and that can depend on what part of, what kind of person you are, or what stage of your life you're at. Yeah. But if you if you relate to him, you can love it, and if you don't relate to him, it's just a you know four hundred four forty seven thousand words of just tedious drivel. <laughs> so it's it's a bit of like we say, it's a bit of a marmite book, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that's that's exactly what it is. An acquired taste which I did not acquire, but which I still have a certain amount of respect for in its moving parts. And there you have it. That is the Catcher in the Rye, Shartley Royal's uh, take on it. And guess what? It's nearly Christmas. Well, it's about a month away. So uh, for next time, we, we may have a... Well, <laughs> this is tricky. We may have a little... Uh, shark Cage cast where we do one book in a single in a single podcast next week just to bridge the gap. It's been a while since the shark cage, hasn't it? Mm. Is it in fact is the last one the the old man in the sea it's probably way the back old man to the beginning. The yeah. <sighs> so that'll be a, a little self-contained special for you to uh and it'll just come out of the blue. It's going to be a mystery book which we're just doing one single podcast for next week. After that, we're going to run up to Christmas doing three parts on the classic. You could only pick one if you're going to do a Christmas book. It's the one the only is it the novelization of Love Actually? It isn't the novelization of Love Actually. It's Can you imagine that book? <laughs> Sorry, carry on. <laughs> it's Charles Dickens' classic A Christmas Carol. God bless us, everyone. <laughs> I think what we'll do is we're going to do this book because it's quite short in two parts. And then the third one is a little Christmas special. We're going to look at the different retellings of A Christmas Carol, both in book and in film form. So um, so dig out for, for next month. Dig out your copy of, I'm sure everyone's got one. If you've not downloaded it for free, I think you can get it. Because it's, it's out of copyright now, isn't it? Um, By about 70 years, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So get your, get your copy of uh, A Christmas Carol and uh, join us on our festive frolic through uh, one of the great English classics. Do you know what I'm looking forward to the most, actually, is when we get to the, A Christmas Carol, I have a feeling you're going to be drawn to a Father Christmas impression at some point, and I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> Count on it. <laughs> you, you can put that prediction in the bank. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, um, in the meantime, if you have any suggestions for 
uh, books for us to cover in the future, or if you want to get in early with any of your comments on a, on a Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, or any of the suggestions, actually any of the suggestions of the different versions that you'd like us to talk about uh, in the Christmas special, just get those into sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can get us on Twitter at Shark Live Royal. We're also on Facebook if you look for Shark Live Royal Podcast. That's about it, Dave. Anything, last things to say before we head out? Uh, no, no, just to say that I'm looking forward to whatever the mystery one shot is next week. And then, yes. um, then the run up to Christmas is going to be good. Fantastic. Well, uh, until next time. Until next time, Matt. Bye.